0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli calcio podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you for listening and sorry it took a little longer than usual to get this episode out to you. On today's episode, we'll start with the latest news around Napoli, Serie A and Europe in part 2, we'll recap the semi-finals of the Champions League and the Europa League. And in part 3, we'll do another feature. Today, we'll talk about squad requirements in terms of non-European Union players and homegrown players. Starting with Napoli, Sky has done the math on Napoli's Champions League revenue, which includes a fixed sum for all participants and variable sums for historical rankings, and the various bonuses tied to the results and how far in the competition each club advanced to. The Serie A clubs collectively made 256 million euros. Of that, Juventus made 86.8 million, Napoli made 65.8 million, Atalanta made 57.6 million, and Inter made 46 million. In other news, the dates were released for Napoli's summer retreat at Castel di Sangro. They will begin on Monday, the 24th of August, and conclude on Friday, the 4th of September. During that time, Napoli will play at least two friendly matches. The dates of which have yet to be announced. Also earlier this week, Aurelio De Laurentiis issued an official statement and Twitter post to welcome new Roma owners, the Friedkin Group, to Serie A. He said, Dear Friedkin, welcome to Italian soccer. Italian football is strengthening and internationalizing. It is now a strong attraction for investments. I am sure that, like us, you want to make an important contribution to transform the football system in Italy, leading it to become more and more an industry that is a mix of sport and entertainment. Moving on, Alex Magim, who is the Lazio physiotherapist that insulted Rino Gattuso after the final match of the Serie A campaign, has decided to resign for personal reasons and to be close to his family. In other news, pictures have leaked of Napoli's new kits. We will wait for the official confirmation, which will probably happen in the next week or so, and then I'll give you my thoughts on those. Finally, we did our transfer special last episode, but there are so many rumors out there that they change on a daily basis, so we'll continue to provide updates, at least on the major stories. Before we talk about potential players coming or going, we do have a quick update on a few players who will be staying. Napoli announced on its official team website that Mario Rui, Giovanni De Lorenzo, and Elif Elmas have all been renewed until 2025. In terms of players who could be leaving, supposedly Manchester City have reached an agreement with Khalidou Koulibaly and his agent Fali Ramadani for his salary, which is reportedly 9 million euros a season for 4 years. All that remains is for the clubs to reach an agreement. Napoli had previously rejected an offer for 63 million euros. The Laurentiis originally wanted 100 million euros, and now the sides are reportedly getting closer to meeting in the middle. The latest that city are preparing to increase their offer to 70 million euros plus bonuses that could bring the total to 80 million If that's true, then I think we're pretty close to a deal here. As far as bonuses go, obviously the clubs prefer guaranteed money over potential money, but we don't know how these bonuses are structured or how difficult they will be to achieve. If and when the deal is done, that will trigger a purchase of Gabriel from Lille for 25 million euros. However, Napoli will need to act quickly as reports have surfaced now that Arsenal have reached an agreement with Gabriel for 30 million euros. There were rumors going around that he has already scheduled a medical, but these reports have yet to be confirmed. On Thursday, Lille president Jared Lopez told TalkSport that he thinks it's fair to say that Napoli and Arsenal are interested in him and the choice will come today or tomorrow at the latest. Arsenal may as well get rid of their scouting department as they only seem to be interested in players that are rumored to go to Napoli. Whether Koulibaly stays or goes, there's little room left for Nikola Maksimovic. The speculation out there is that he was not happy about being on the bench for the Champions League match against Barcelona nor with the offer Napoli made to extend his contract. There are a few rumors out there about potential destinations. The leading rumor is that Maksimovic could be included in a swap deal with Roma for Cengizunder. Alternatively, Napoli could try to swap Arkadouche Milik for Cengizunder and Cash. Previously, the reports were that Milik was only interested in Juventus and that he had reached an agreement with the Bianconeri, but to avoid sitting on the bench for the entire season ahead of the European Championships and because Juve appeared to have moved on, he now seems to be open to Roma. On Thursday, the Gazzetta reported that Pirlo prefers Dzeko at Juventus, which would further strengthen the case for Napoli to negotiate with Roma. However, Napoli only need Under if they are unable to acquire Jeremy Boga from Sassuolo. Napoli remain the front runners for Boga. His brother and agent Daniel Boga told Radio Kiss Kiss that Jeremy is flattered by the praise he's received from Gattuso and Giuntoli. He added that he does not know much about Napoli, but from what he's heard about the Napoli tiny people, it sounds similar to his hometown of Marseille. He added that Jeremy knows very well that Napoli are a top team, a great club, and that the fans are very passionate. In short, there are all the ingredients that have fun when you play in Napoli. Most importantly, he said that he'll be meeting Sassuolo in the next few days to talk about Boga's contract, which expires in 2022, but they will not be talking about a renewal. Finally, a couple of quick rumors. Everton appears to be inching closer to reaching an agreement to acquire Alan Fauzi Gulam could be on his way to Wolverhampton, and if he does, Mikhail Carbonic or Sergio Reguilón could replace him. The former seems more likely for this backup position. Napoli are seeking a loan deal with Reguilón, while Real Madrid want to sell him. Alfredo Pedula claims that Napoli are interested in Arsenal defender Socrates, which I hope is not true. Three Napoli players are in the sights of Sampdoria. If Muru and Berzinski leave, then they could look to Napoli for Kevin Malcui, Elcid Cusai, and or Sebastiano Luperto. I'd be fine with letting go of QSAI and Luperto, but I would hate to lose Malqui. And the name that's currently being touted as a replacement for QSAI is Hellas Verona defender Davide Faraoni. Moving on to Serie A, on Wednesday reports started to surface of Serie A players contracting coronavirus. The two biggest concerns for Napoli are Andrea Patania, who signed in January and will join the club this season, and Jeremy Boga, who is Napoli's number one transfer target. Two Torino players and one Brescia player have also tested positive. For Cagliari, Filipe Braderec, Luca Cepitelli, and Alberto Cerri have also tested positive. And at Roma, backup keeper Antonio Mirante and two Primavera players. Now I'll try to say this in the most sensitive way that I can, but while I don't wish for anyone to get ill and I don't want this virus to spread, if there was ever a time to get the virus, now is the time. We're a month away from the start of the season, so anyone who's contracted the virus can self-quarantine and recover, and it sounds like most of the players are asymptomatic, so at least they're not in pain. Also, this might just be the scare that Serie clubs needed to make sure they continue taking the necessary precautions that enabled the completion of the 2019-2020 campaign. This has already led to speculation that the start of the new season might need to be postponed until October 4th. I think that's a little premature, certainly if the virus spreads that's worth considering, but the clubs have the means and the protocols to prevent the spread amongst players, so postponing the start really should not be necessary. Unfortunately, that likely means that any plans to bring spectators back to stadiums, even in a limited capacity, will have to be deferred. Last week, the Italian government approved the FIGC's proposal to resume amateur and youth football activities, which includes women's football, so we'll see if the increase in COVID cases impacts that decision. In other news, Lega Serie A President Paolo D'Alpino gave a really interesting interview to James Horncastle of The Athletic, where he talked about a number of things. He said he wants to bring Serie a back to the glory days, and while he wishes the Premier League, La Liga, the Bundesliga, and Liga all the best, he wants to be better than them. He knows it will take time, but he thinks Serie A can become the top league again, and he thinks they can double revenue in the next 7-10 to 10 years. The primary way to do that is through the league's new media company. The primary way to do that is through the league's new media company. Dalpino talked about the situation with Sky, where they were not willing to pay their final installment for the prior season, and had proposed a 10-20% to 20% reduction for the upcoming contract, so Lega Serie A will move away from Sky. He also talked about the brand of Italian football and how if he takes a taxi in Rio de Janeiro, the driver will see he's Italian and will say Paolo Rossi, even though he hasn't played in 38 years, so there's an opportunity to grow into these markets. When asked about Juventus winning 9 consecutive Scudetti, Dalpino said, If you look at the other leagues in the gap between 1st and 2nd or 4th and 5th, you see that Serie A has been quite balanced this season. His wish is to have a Serie A that is attractive to investors who love the sport because if you attract them then you will also attract the right players and sponsors and a greater competitive balance will follow. On new stadiums, Dalpino said he stands by the side of Rocco Camiso and all the new owners who are fighting red tape in their efforts to invest in stadiums. Finally, on racism in the league, he said Setti has goals to eradicate it from the game and to that end they will eliminate and heavily sanction any discriminatory behavior. On that final point, I'll believe it when I see it as to date the league has not impressed me with how it's responded to these incidents. Back to broadcasting rights for a second, we did get a small update earlier in the week. If you recall, in July, Sedia requested offers for investment in the league's newly created media company, three funds, CBC, Bain, and Advent submitted investment proposals, while Apollo, Fortress, and Blackstone submitted a financing proposal through their investment arm GSO. According to ANSA, Legaceria has asked them to submit their final binding offers by August 25th and we'll meet in the following days to review those offers. Finally, the Serie B promotion playoff was completed since our last update. Last Wednesday, Frosinone defeated Pordenone in the second leg of their semifinal match, so Frosinone advanced to the final with a 2-1 win on aggregate. They played Spezia in the first leg of the final on Sunday. Spezia won that match 1-0 on a goal by Emmanuel Ghiassi in the 21st minute. The second leg was played at the Stadio Benito Stirpe in Frosinone on Thursday. That match finished 1-0 for Frosinone on a goal by Marcus Rodin, but that wasn't enough as the tiebreak goes to the higher seed. So unfortunately, Alessandro Nesta will not be joining his former teammates Filippo Inzaghi, Gennaro Gattuso, and Andrea Pirlo in Serie A. Meanwhile, Spezia have been promoted to Serie A for the first time in club history, so congratulations to La Spezia. Moving on to Europe, UEFA President Alexander Seferin rejected the notion that the current formats for the final eight of the Champions League and Europa League could be used in the future. Because of COVID, these final eight matches are all being played as single leg ties in a neutral location. Seferin cited that it would be impossible to play all these matches in one city because of how jam-packed the schedule is. I suspect that's only part of the answer. The other reason is you obviously make a lot more money playing two legs instead of one. So that'll do for the news. In part two, we'll recap the latest action in European competition. There was plenty of action in European competitions this week with both the Champions League and the Europa League semi-finals being played. Starting with the Champions League, PSG defeated Leipzig 3-0 on Tuesday, Marquinhos opened the scoring with a header from a set piece in the 13th minute, Angel Di Maria who returned from suspension doubled the lead just before the break, and Juan Bernat made it 3-0 in the 56th minute. Neymar and Mbappe picked up right where they left off against Atalanta, they were flying early on. Once again Neymar had his chances but couldn't finish, he was a bit unfortunate in this one hitting the upright in the opening minutes and then again in the 35th minute from a free kick. PSG had a free kick on the right side of the box and everyone was expecting a cross including Leipzig keeper Peter Gulashi who was well off his line and Neymar spotted it. He had the audacity to bend his shot around the two man wall from the sharp angle but he hit the outside of the post. Leipzig did not help their own cause in this match. On the first goal, they conceded two corner kicks and a free kick in rapid succession, though they were under barrage from the French club. Then on the second goal, Gulashi turned the ball over with a poor pass intended for Marcel Sabitzer, and in the blink of an eye, the ball was in the back of the goal. And on the third goal, Nordi Mukiel went down a little too easily, expecting to get the call, but he didn't. The Leipzig backline stopped playing for a second or two, so Bernat was left completely unmarked in front of the goal, and Mukiel was still on the ground, so he played Bernat on side. Neither side scored after that, both keepers made a nice save here and there. For Italians, it was nice to see Marco Verratti come off the bench in the 83rd minute, and for that short period, he actually looked pretty good. After the match, Neymar posted a photo from a boat somewhere smiling with a Red Bull Cup. That just reminded me of why I don't want PSG to win the competition. You don't see Messi or Ronaldo doing this garbage after wins. Even Zlatan, who has a huge ego, is usually more gracious in victory. I know a lot of people hate Leipzig because of the financial support they get from the energy drink makers, but the staff and players, many of whom are under 23, still have to put the effort in. The irony is, during the match, the broadcast commented on how Neymar is maturing and how he's become a leader of the squad. This brought back memories of PSG's come from behind victory over Dortmund and the entire squad mocked Erling Haaland's meditation celebration from the first leg, even though Haaland was only 19 years old at the time. Anyhow, PSG will play in the final for a chance to win their first ever Champions League trophy. Bayern Munich took on Lyon in the other semi-final. Bayern won this match 3-0 on a brace from Serge Gnabry and the third goal was from Robert Lewandowski, who has scored in all 9 of Bayern's Champions League matches this tournament. Leon really cost themselves any chance of winning this match in the opening 17 minutes. In the 4th minute, Thiago turned the ball over to Kakure, who sprung Memphis to Pai, who really should have done better. The opportunity to chip Neuer was there, but he elected to dribble around him. Neuer stood his ground and the shot ended up hitting the side netting. Then in the 12th minute, Memphis had another chance. He hit the ball well, but the shot lacked accuracy and missed the back of the goal. And in the 17th minute, Carl Toko Akambi got in behind Alfonso Davies. Then he cut in to create the shot, but he hit the upright. And of course, less than a minute later, Serge Gnabry showed Memphis and Toko Akambi how it's done, smashing a left-footed strike into the top corner. Nabry was my man of the match in this one. He was stopped by Anthony Lopez in the 25th minute. He scored the brace in the 33rd minute. Even though it was a tap-in, Gnabry did well to start the movement, first by winning possession from Corne second by spotting Perisic on the wing, and then third by making the run toward the goal. With that, he's now scored 9 goals in 9 matches. He had another chance in the 38th minute, again cutting into his left foot before playing the shot cross towards the far post, and all it needed was a touch from Lewandowski and the ball would have been in the back of the goal. So Bayern Munich will play against PSG in the final of the Champions League on Sunday. So that was the Champions League. Earlier in the week, we had the Europa League semi-finals. Manchester United played against Sevilla in the pouring rain on Sunday. This one finished 2-1 for Sevilla, who came from behind after Bruno Fernandes, opened the scoring in the 9th minute, ex-Milan player Suzo equalized in the 26th minute, and Luke De Jong completed the comeback in the 78th minute. Let's start with the United goal, it seems whenever a big club like Manchester United is awarded a penalty social media lights up. This one was really interesting so I want to talk about it a little bit. On the play Anthony Martial dragged the ball through to Marcus Rashford on the left side of the box. Rashford got his shot off which was stopped by Sevilla keeper Yassine Bounou, but in the process Rashford was also taken down by the defender. I thought this was an interesting decision because Rashford got the shot off and I think in the past the penalty would not have been given for that reason. Now Diego Carlos clearly fouled Rashford, I don't think you can argue that. I wonder though what the call would have been had the ball gone into the back of the goal because if you rewatch this play, you'll see that the foul was committed before the ball would have hypothetically crossed the line. Based on the referee's decision to award the penalty, had the ball gone in, you must assume that the goal would have been disallowed and the penalty still given. Otherwise, that is, if the goal is allowed, then the referee would have played the advantage and the penalty not given. But in that case, the penalty should not have been given regardless of whether the ball went in or not because the referee played the advantage. In any event, the penalty was given and Bruno Fernandes converted. His technique on the penalty was something else. He basically jumped before the shot, which is not easy to do at all. So that was United's goal. I want to talk about Sevilla's first goal as well. Social media lit up for this one as well, but I think for the wrong reasons. Whenever United concede a goal, Harry Maguire gets the blame. I'm not a Harry Maguire fan. In fact, Napoli fans love to point to Harry Maguire whenever people, especially Premier League fans, say that Koulibaly is overpriced. But I think the criticisms of Maguire were a little bit harsh on this goal. As a defender you sometimes get caught between the man and the ball which is what happened here. Maguire anticipates the run from Yusuf and Nezri so he turns back and gets stuck between Inezri and the ball. That's normally fine if everyone has a man but Brandon Williams was late to get back. In my opinion Williams was more at fault here than Maguire was. And if you really want to blame someone then blame match official Felice Birch. This goal started with a throw in and on the replay you can clearly see that the ball came off Jules Koundé's little afro before going out of play. Unfortunately for United fans, according to the IFAB's VAR protocol, the laws of the game do not allow restart decisions such as corner kicks and throw-ins to be reviewed. On the match as a whole, I thought this was a tough result for United. They were on the front foot the entire match, taking it to Sevilla. I was chatting with Hader Rubani, who's the host of the Premier League Trio podcast, and he's a red devil through and through. Hader's take was United created a lot of chances, but it was the same old story. They're not clinical enough, they don't have enough quality on the bench, an individual of defensive errors once again as an napoli fan i certainly feel this pain while we do have quality on the bench we struggle to finish all year and more often than not the goals we conceded were the result of individual errors you do have to give lopetegui and sevilla a lot of credit for the win though they were on their back foot most of the match when they did have the ball though they moved it around beautifully particularly on that third goal the defending was a little bit suspect though. Juan Bisaka allowed substitute Luke the Young to get behind him. It seemed like he was trying to hold the line, but clearly Maguire and Lindelof were in deeper positions, so you can either fault them for not pushing up, or you can fault Juan Bissaka for being on the wrong side of the young. Another player that stood out to me was Sergio Reguilon, and you can see why Napoli is interested in him. Like Mario Rui, he loves to get for it on the left side, but he has better pace, he makes more incisive runs and the quality of his crosses is more consistent, which we saw in the first goal. When Sevilla didn't have the ball, they defended well. Their backline made a number of blocks, and Bounou made a number of saves. The last thing I'll say about this match is I was impressed with the officiating. In fact, after the round of 16 of the Champions League, the officiating in both European competitions has been much better. I'm sure there are fans in other leagues who are not impressed, but I've been conditioned by Serie to expect weak penalty calls and fouls to be given. Joan Jordan took a free kick in the second half that came off Bruno Fernandes' elbow in the wall. A penalty definitely would have been given there in Serie yeah. There was also a sequence in the second half where twice United players went down and the referee played on, and at the other end of the pitch a Sevilla player went to ground too easily and he played on again. There was a similar non-call in the Inter-Shaktar match where Bastoni cleared the ball out and it hit Galliardini in the arm but the penalty wasn't given there either. So United are out. Sevilla have reached their first final since winning the tournament three years in a row, from 2013 to 2016, they will play the winner of Inter and Shakhtar Donetsk, who played on Monday. Inter won that match 5-0. Lautaro Martino scored the opener in the 19th minute. Danilo D'Ambroso made it 2-0 in the 64th minute. That goal was the first by an Italian in a European semi final in the last decade. Credit to my friend Rob Pizzola for that nugget. By the way, if you're into sports gambling, Rob is a must-follow. His handle on Twitter is at Rob Pizzola. Lautaro scored his 2nd in the 74th minute, and Lukaku scored a brace with goals in the 78th and 84th minutes. Lukaku has now scored in 10 consecutive Europa League matches. Despite the scoreline, this match didn't really feel like a blowout, at least not for the first 75 minutes. Shakhtar had plenty of the ball, though Inter really didn't give them much. But we've seen Pats at Inter this year, and I couldn't help but wonder if we'd see it again in this match. We nearly did in the 62nd minute, when Inter were still up 1-0, Somehow Junior Mortyash got a free header despite being the lone Shakhtar player among four Inter players in the area, but Handanovic made a somewhat unsuspecting save. I was disappointed with Shakhtar's performance as a whole. After seeing the beautiful football they played against FC Basel, I was expecting more of a fight in this one, but obviously Inter are miles ahead of Basel in terms of quality. They did make a few mistakes as well. On the first goal, there was a poor clearance from Andrei Piatov straight to Barella. Barella did well to get to the wing around Matvienko, and then he played a perfect cross into the box, and Lautaro made a perfect header to finish. Shakhtar nearly allowed a second to Lautaro early in the second half after he won possession from Kocholava, who was the last man back, but Piatov did really well to stop Lautaro's lob. And on the third inter goal, Stepanenko conceded possession cheaply in the middle of the pitch, and before you knew it, the ball was in the back of the goal. This was the best Lautaro performance we've seen in a really long time. There's been a lot of talk about his dip in performance since the rumors of a transfer to Barcelona began. In addition to scoring a brace, he also played a delicate through ball to Lukaku on his first goal. In fact, it was the best Inter performance we've seen in a while as well. We saw the link-up play between Lautaro and Lukaku that we did earlier in the Serie A campaign. Nicolo Barella had a strong performance as well. And besides that one junior Mores chance, Inter defended really well as a team. I love seeing the contrasting styles in defense. Some clubs like Atalanta, Napoli to an extent, and Bayern play a high press and force their opponents to make mistakes and concede possession. That's not what Inter do. They defend in numbers, they sit back patiently, and they keep their shape, which makes their backline very difficult to penetrate. So with the win, Inter have a chance to win their first trophy in a decade when they play against Sevilla in the final on Friday. So that'll do it for part two in part three we'll do our next feature on squad rules So for today's feature, I thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about squad requirements, and by requirements I don't mean where are there deficiencies from a footballing perspective, instead I'm referring to the specific rules set by FIGC for how teams must be constructed. Since we're in the thick of the abbreviated transfer window, I figured now would be a good time to chat about it, because you often hear during the transfer window things like a club needs to free up a non-EU spot to bring a player in. I've been trying to figure this out for quite some time, but it's next to impossible to find out on the Legaceria or FIGC website, so forgive me if I don't get it exactly right. I've cobbled this together from a few different sources, but if anyone has more information, please reach out to me on Twitter. So let's start with the non-European positions. In Italy, European means someone holding a European passport issued by a country who is a part of the European Union, or Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, or Switzerland. So anyone outside of those countries is considered non-EU. As far as I can tell, there are no restrictions on the number of non-EU players that can be in the squad. However, there are restrictions on the number of non-EU players a club can sign in any given season. And those restrictions are based on the number of players that are currently registered with the team as non-EU players. So if a club has zero non-EU players, they can sign up to three in a single season. If a club has only one non-EU player, they can sign up to two in a single season. If a club has exactly two non-EU players, they can buy one non-EU player from a foreign club without restriction. However, the club can sign a second non-EU player only if he is replacing another one, and that can be done in three ways. First, the replaced player can be sold to a foreign club. Second, the replaced player's contract expires or third, the replaced player obtains European citizenship. Finally, if a club has three or more non-EU players, they can buy up to two non-EU players, but only if both of those players replace another player who is considered non-European, which can be done in the same three ways we just described. So looking at Napoli's squad, heading into the transfer market, we have six non-EU players, David Ospina is from Colombia, Nikola Maksimovic is Serbian, Elcid Kusai is from Albania, Elif Elmas is from North Macedonia, Leandrinho is from Brazil, and Irving Lozano is from Mexico. Kusai and Elmas could become European players soon as Albania and North Macedonia are in the process of joining the European Union. Even if they did though we'd still have 4 non-EU players, meaning we could buy 2 more, but only if they replaced 2 of our current non-EU players. This season, we've signed Victor osaman who's from Nigeria and therefore is a non-EU player, but we sold Brazilian Leandrinho to RB Bragantino. Now, Napoli officially announced the osaman signing on July 31st and sold Leandrinho on August 12th, so you might be wondering how we signed osaman before freeing up the non-EU spot. The key there is that though Oseman signed this contract in July, the effective date of the contract is September 1st, which is after the sale of Leandrinho. So that means if we want to sign a second non-EU player, say Gabriel who's Brazilian or Vitali Mikolenko who's Ukrainian, then at least according to these rules Napoli would need to move another non-EU player out. Now there are ways to get around these rules and clubs certainly take advantage of them. For example, so long as a player has a citizenship from a European country, they don't occupy a non-EU spot. Kalidou Koulibaly is a Senegalese international, but having grown up in France, he has a French citizenship so he's considered a European player. Similarly, Elan is Brazilian, but he holds a Portuguese citizenship, so he's considered European as well. Napoli must have exploited some of these loopholes last season as they acquired three non-EU players in Lozano, Elmas, and Ospina. Meanwhile, we sold only one non-EU player to a foreign club, which was Vinicius to Benfica. We sold Amadou Diawara as well, who's a non-EU player, but he wasn't sold to a foreign club, so that should not have counted. So two rules appear to have been violated then, first that we acquired more non-EU players than we sold to foreign clubs, and second that we should have only been able to bring in two non-EU players, not three. But like I said, there are ways of getting around the rules, on the latter I suspect the loophole had something to do with Ospina being on loan with obligation to buy. This rule was actually the subject of a huge scandal in the 2000s dubbed Passaportopoli, as the story goes, in September of 2000, Udinese traveled to Poland for a UEFA Cup match against Polania Warsaw. Two Brazilian players, Silva Worley and Valentim Alberto, were stopped at the border for possessing fake Portuguese passports. When the Udinet police department contacted the Portuguese embassy, they discovered the civil servants in question never existed. Fabio Capello, who was in charge at Roma at the time, was furious that the reigning champions Lazio... Were not penalized after one Sebastian Verón was caught in the scandal, his papers indicated that he had a great-grandparent from Calabria who as it turned out did not exist. So during the championship campaign, Verón was listed as European, and then the following season he was listed as non-European. When FIGC finally investigated 5 months after the original incident, they discovered 9 players had falsified documents including Milan goalkeeper Dida and Inter midfielder Alvaro Recoba. But in a typical Serie fashion, the solution they came up with was simply to abolish the rule at the time. The latest controversy around this rule is that Brexit would cause a number of footballers from the UK, such as Gareth Bale, to become non-EU players, which can create complications in some of the domestic leagues. So that's the requirement for non-EU players. The other requirement that was introduced for the 2016-2017 campaign was the minimum number of Italian players required in the squad. In 2014, a BBC study showed that only 45% of the minutes played in Serie A were from Italians. That same summer, Italy crashed out of the group stage of the World Cup with one win, two losses, and only two goals for. So the FIGC took action, adopting a rule that UEFA uses in European competitions. Starting in the 2016-2017 campaign, Serie A squads were required to maintain four homegrown players and four Italian-born club-trained players. A homegrown player is defined as a player who spent at least three years between the ages of 15 and 21 with an Italian club, whether in a youth system, a first team, or even on loan, so long as a contract was held by an Italian team. Meret, Di Lorenzo, and Politano are all examples of homegrown players. A club-trained player is defined as a player who spent at least three years with the club who owns their registration. Napoli's club-trained players include Lorenzo Insigne and Sebastiano Luperto. This rule has more of an impact in European competition. In Europe, you must maintain 8 locally trained players, which is the equivalent of an Italian-born player in Serie A. A locally trained player is either an association trained player, which is the equivalent of a homegrown player in Serie A, or a club trained player. If a club has fewer than 8 locally trained players, then the squad size is reduced accordingly. So for example, if a squad has only 3 association trained players and only 2 club trained players, for a total of 5 locally trained players, instead of 8, then the typical 25-man squad would be reduced to 22 men. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing, I'm still trying to work out all the details myself, and if I do figure it all out, I'll give everyone an update. So that's going to do it for episode 36, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions, or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular... You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 or you can find the podcast at Pod. You can also hear me on the Premier League Trio podcast with Hater Rubani. Hater is an EPL and Manchester United expert, but he's quickly falling in love with Serie A. On the next episode, which we'll post soon, we discuss Napoli's dramatic 2019-2020 campaign. So that's it for today. We'll talk to you again soon, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Aí say- tu sai ador adoro tu cuore ingrato e famela gro adoro lo fuoco coche ma si fuisce e la te my, my, my. Podcast Network.